We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined this evening by regular commentator, Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And Dimitri Bures of the China Post. Hey, hi there. And we'll begin with the Central Epidemic Command Centre on Monday, reporting no new coronavirus cases and no new deaths from the disease for the first time in 193 days, or since April the 8th. And while health officials were busy touting that milestone on Monday, the Epidemic Command Centre reported one new domestic infection on Tuesday. However, all of the other cases so far this week have been imported. Now, the Central Epidemic Command Centre this week also extended the current Level 2 coronavirus alert for another two weeks through November the 1st. However, it also announced more exceptions to face mask wearing requirements. People are now no longer required to wear face masks when exercising outdoors as long as they do not have any symptoms and can maintain a distance of one metre from other people. People can now also take off their face masks briefly for group photographs or when eating or drinking when out on the street if social distancing rules are followed. However, while stating those guidelines, Health Minister Chen Shih-jong also stressed that as a general rule, people should still in fact wear a face mask outside of their residence and also have one ready, even if they are in situations where they don't have to wear one. Now, several embassies here in Taiwan, de facto embassies and missions, are calling on the government to ease its border control measures that they say are hurting people-to-people exchanges and the running of businesses. The calls come amid growing concerns voiced by foreign offices and businesses here over the restrictive measures. The foreign missions are arguing that the border restrictions are hampering businesses' operations because companies are unable to bring in foreign experts. However, Deputy Health Minister Xu Zhongliang on Thursday said the government has no plans to lift border control measures until at least 30% of the island's population have received two shots needed to be fully vaccinated against the coronavirus. And according to Xu, the Central Epidemic Command Centre will weigh up the global pandemic situation and also Taiwan's coronavirus vaccine coverage rate before making any changes to the current border policies. The government, of course, has said that it's aiming to ensure that 70% of the island's population have received at least one shot and 30% have gotten the two doses by the end of this month. Now, figures show that about 5.69 million people have now been fully vaccinated, which translates into 24.3% of the population, while some 15.2 million people have now received at least one vaccine shot, equaling 65% of the population. And if all that wasn't enough, well, the Central Epidemic Command Centre on Thursday said that it's planning to authorise further coronavirus vaccine mix and matching. And authorities say they'll soon begin allowing people who have received an AstraZeneca shot at least 10 weeks ago to choose the Pfizer-BioNTech shot for their second dose during the next round of vaccinations. Now, the vaccine mix and matching could begin as early as November. And according to the health minister, about one million people who have received one AstraZeneca dose are currently waiting for their second shot. However, the Epidemic Command Centre says more research is needed before people will be able to mix the domestically developed Medigen jab with any other vaccines. So, Dimitri, where to begin here? In fact, let's begin with the foreign embassies, the foreign missions, the foreign de facto embassies and foreign businesses calling on the government to ease its border control measures. Now, obviously, you probably sort of agree with this, but do you think this is a good idea at the current juncture in time, Dimitri? Well, uh, what I'm, I'm, I'm kind of happy now that for the first time they clearly, the government authorities clearly spelled out the rule and when would it be possible to have uh, those workers, their families, to allow them to come into Taiwan. Uh, 
uh, as of Thursday, up to 5.67 million people had been fully vaccinated in Taiwan, which translates into 24.3% of the population. So within the next two weeks, or we, at least two weeks, we could see some, uh, may, we could quickly reach 30%. So uh, at least, and for the first time, because the government was very conservative and didn't clearly explain when and how they would reopen the country. So, well, we could see improvements pretty time, pretty, pretty soon. And it's long overdue, and uh, well, I hope, I believe most businesses are looking forward to have the staff they hired a couple of months ago. They've been on standby in their home country for months now to be able to come to Taiwan for kids to join school, uh, for families to reunite. So I think it's very important for the members and the friends of the foreign community. But Brian, of course, when people look at the rising coronavirus cases in Europe, this could be of concern to some people, including the government. That's right. And so I think there will be some deliberation over what countries, for example, should have measures relaxed and to what extent measures are relaxed. Uh, the Delta variant has tore through countries that have relaxed uh, border controls. And similarly, I think the government here in Taiwan would also be concerned about that. It's quite interesting because there's been much debate about how the present outbreak started. Was it, for example, because of shortened quarantine periods for pilots? And so I think, first, the Thai administration will not want to go through that uh, controversy again regarding other groups. And second, the KMT will leverage on this to attack the Thai administration. I mean, the pattern seen to date throughout the outbreak is that oftentimes local governments that are pan-blue, uh, controlled by the pan-blue uh, politicians, are more reluctant to relax border restrictions or, or, well, not border restrictions, restrictions in general on uh, life because of COVID. And so I think this will also be the, the same thing with border restrictions. Um, and I think it's a question. I mean, it's definitely a uh, issue that many people cannot come here, even though they could just come here, pass through the quarantine system and so forth, to just actually come to Taiwan and take up the job that they have taken or be reunited with their families, etc. And this has been something that the CCSC has not announced a clear timeline on. So I think it is positive that there is uh, now a push in this direction. However, it's still a question to what extent within what bounds that these restrictions will be lifted. And, Dimitri, of course, mix-and-matching vaccine is going to be allowed for the general public possibly from early next month. Well, that's another good announcement. It's a very important announcement. And, uh, again, I think that will uh, reinforce uh, the people's willingness to, to, to get vaccinated. If there were any concerns, uh, well, I believe most Taiwanese people are uh, keen and willing to be vaccinated. And maybe some thought that by mixing and matching brands, they could maybe improve their, uh, their, their, safe, their safety so well. It's a, I think it's another positive measure in the, in the right direction that could also help boost the vaccination rate and so that we can hopefully open the country uh, faster. Uh, Taiwan will need to, um, as a follow-up of, of what we just said, Taiwan at one point will need to face, and to answer this question, we can't have a zero covid uh, forever in Taiwan. At one point, the vaccine, the, the, the virus will enter the country and we will have to live with it. So uh, improving the vaccination, making it faster, it's all good news for, 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 for the Taiwanese population. But yes, uh, whenever you, when, when you open the country one day, you, you have to admit that the, 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 the virus will enter the country and won't leave again. And of course, Brian, it's great news that they're going to mix and match. It speeds up the um, vaccination coverage. But of course, the government is likely to face allegations due to, about the lack of certain brands of vaccines. Of course, it may, we've ordered all this AstraZeneca, 
and now they're going to mix and match with the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, with the AstraZeneca vaccine. No doubt some people are going to be going, you're doing this because you didn't order enough vaccine doses to begin with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And so the KMT will probably still use this as an angle attack on the Biden administration. Uh, it's actually quite interesting to me regarding the mixing and matching for AstraZeneca and BioNTech in particular, because BioNTech was framed by the KMT and the Pamela Camp as the safest vaccine, and AstraZeneca as a dangerous vaccine. And so some were previously very reluctant to get vaccinated with AstraZeneca. They waited out for BioNTech. And one saw similarly with Moderna. Uh, and there continues to be lacking supply of Moderna, despite that there are some people that basically will only get vaccinated if it is Moderna. But then mixing and matching vaccines in this way might allay some species concerns. Um, there are also the fact that, that this is shown to have uh, more efficacy. And so I think this might help in terms of encouraging some people to be vaccinated. But I think, as with uh, as Meiji mentioned, just eventually there will have to be a point in which uh, the coronavirus becomes endemic. The question then is, is when, the government, when will it be willing to endure the little cost of opening up things and allowing for COVID-19 to spread and it hopes that just enough of the population is vaccinated that this does not go out of control? And it's very difficult because, as we've seen in other contexts, when that does happen, uh, there are a lot of infections and, and the, the health system, the medical system, is again burdened. And Brian, what about booster shots? Yeah, I think that will also be the next uh, political debate then. Because, for example, uh, someone like Taipei Mayor Cohen just said that, well, while the first two shots are the responsibility of the central government, the local government should take up booster shots. And we can purchase this on our own. We don't need to go through the central government. Uh, This is, again, a a way to try and undermine the authority of the central government uh, to upstage it and have local governments show that they can do better. And so I think they'll be fighting along those lines, in part between the central and local government, as we've already seen through the duration of this uh, outbreak. Um, but then just in general, where will these shots come from? What will they be? Uh, will they arrive in time? I mean, it's interesting that the uh, the central government has banked primarily on Moderna, and Moderna is the one that is quite slow in terms of supplies right now. So will this actually happen? Will we actually get the vaccines that we were promised? Uh, I think these will become things that are fought over again uh, next year. And there's still questions about how long uh, vaccine shots last, their effectiveness lasts longer than six months. And so these are questions that are still being asked, and I think that, uh, this will also come up and become a further complicated issue. And of course, Dimitri, another complicated part of this issue is the domestically developed me- Medigen jab, which of course the government have said it needs more research before people will be able to mix and match that one, and also more research into whether the Medigen jab can be used as a booster. Right. We still don't have any information about the phase three trial, by the way. So we need also to wait until the end of the year to to really be able to look carefully at the results of the the, the the phase two trial so it's really too early for that and with the vaccination rate the full vaccination rate being around 30 percent for now uh, it's also unlikely that the government or authorities will uh, deliver boosters uh, so early so we also maybe look into maybe earlier next year to potentially have boosters and to have enough people vaccinated because if you give boosters now, uh, so many people haven't been vaccinated yet. You, 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 lot, I mean, I think a lot of people would actually complain if they decided to give boosters to people who already have had two shots, knowing that there are zero COVID cases in Taiwan so far. So, well, I don't think the timing is right right now. And Brian, the local developed Medigen jab questions about whether it can be mixed and matched and should it be used as a booster? 
That's right. And so it's interesting because uh, one of these suggestions as the outbreak was dying down is that the uh, Medigen vaccine could be used for boosters. However, uh, the CCC and the medical authorities are currently saying that there's not enough data on this. Uh, and so that raises the question then of what do you do with Medigen that you put so much money into and uh, developing and, and uh, funding the production of? Uh, and so one of the suggestions then, I guess, send it to diplomatic allies, etc. Uh, but I think that probably it is true that Medigen itself, the company, will try to push for the use of the booster. And I can see some politicians also kind of getting on board that one bandwagon. And so I think that will also become another issue of tension between the pan-blue and the pan-green camps, as Medigen has generally been throughout its rollout in development process. Moving on now, and voters in Taichung's second electoral district will be heading to the polling stations tomorrow to cast their ballots in a recall vote against Taiwan State Building Party lawmaker Chen Bo Wei. Now, Taichung's second electoral district is made up of the Dadu, Shalu, Longjing, Ufong, and Ure districts. Now, the 35-year-old first-time lawmaker, well, he got his seat in the legislative UN last year after narrowly beating then-incumbent county lawmaker Yang Kuan Hung, who, of course, is the son of Yen Qingbian who represented the district from between 2002 through 2012. Now, the recall vote was initiated by a chap called Young Wen Yuan, who said that he voted for Chen in January of last year, but now regrets that choice. Now, Chen's opponents say that he's behaved outrageously in the legislature and supported the government's decision to lift a ban on imports of pork containing ractopamine. Chen has also faced claims of neglecting his constituency and behaving outrageously, in, like I said before, in the legislature and also on social media. And if you happen to believe KMT chairman Eric Jew, then Chen also supports legalising marijuana, which, according to the KMT chairman, is a huge no-no that deserves his immediate recall. Now, the recall, though, has been plagued with allegations and counter-allegations, accusations and counter-allegations, and has been described by some pundits as being a generational war being waged by the KMT against young Taiwanese voters. Now, according to the Central Election Commission, tomorrow's recall vote is costing 20.04 million NT, 258 polling stations are set to be set up, 3,222 workers have been hired, and 1,571 police officers have been mobilised. Now, there are 291,122 eligible voters in Taichung's second electoral district, and for the recall vote to pass, at least 25% of all eligible voters, or 72,781, must vote in favour of the recall, and they must outnumber those who vote against it. So, Brian, this has been a rather a contentious recall because every time you turn the TV on or look at the newspaper, one group or another, be it doctors, vets, students, is coming out in support of Chen and another group is coming out opposing Chen. That's right. And so it is a contest between the Pan Blue and the Pan Green camps and they're mobilising various constituencies for or against Chen. Uh, Chen is interesting in that sense because similar to some of the other younger, more progressive legislators that have been uh, elected, Oftentimes he's focused on national level issues, but then that leads to accusations that he's not actually focused on the local constituency, uh, the local needs and, and the people and so forth. And sometimes this is uh, not helped by the fact that younger politicians have sought to break from older practices when you go around to funerals, weddings, and uh, things like that just to build local ties, but you're not actually focused on politics. Uh, and so Chen is uh, one of these more progressive, more emphatic on Taiwanese identity uh, politicians from the Taiwan State Building Party. Uh, which, as the name implies, is known as the Radical Party, uh, is more trying to be more politically radical in some sense uh, than the DPP, uh, allowing the DPP to voice certain issues by taking a harder line on independence or uh, social progressive issues, and Chen belongs to that. Uh, it's also interesting as a candidate because he ran in Taichung, which is historically dominated by pan-blue politics, 
by Pan Blue gangster pop in particular. Uh, Indian Gao is widely known as a gangster, and his child as politician is seen as inheriting this political dynasty. And so Chen is seen as standing up against that. And so I think for young people, this is seen as standing up against uh, corruption that is deeply tied to local politics in Taiwan. However, is that the way that voters will decide? That's, that's another matter entirely. This is another sad day for Taiwan democracy, which, which, which has continued to thrive, even though the relationship between the opposition and ruling party has become bitter and bitter. Well, uh, about the arguments you mentioned, well, they are interesting arguments, knowing that usually uh, legislators in Taiwan make prov- provocative statements, don't attend legislative sessions and the like. So, well, I think this is like in previous cases, a good excuse to recall an official in the political stronghold held by a political opponent. So, well, the real question is how many eligible voters the opposition party will manage to convince to cast their ballot this time. But even if the legislators recall, it shows that those uh, recalls, in the end, don't serve the, the purpose and the, the, the reason why we had the opportunity, we have the opportunity to recall the legislator. Uh, we had the same argument not so long ago with Han Guoyu. And we can use the same argument, this exactly the same argument uh, from the blue or the green camp against, uh, against uh, this legislator. So, well, yes, I think it's really a sad day for Taiwan democracy. So I think it's quite interesting because uh, there's a pattern of uh, quote-unquote revenge recalls. Uh, so after Han's recall, for example, Han supporters, fervent Han supporters, called for the recall of Chen Wei and also Wang Jie. Wang Jie's recall vote already happened, but not successful. Um, and so that's, this is a political retribution in that sense for supporting Han recall. And so then the KMT has framed this issue now beyond just that. And it has made into this, uh, the referendum against the Pan Green Camp. And this is something that Eric Chu announced when he became the KMT chair in his, uh, victory speech. Uh, and so I think this becomes a battleground then between the Pan Green and the Pan Blue Camps. And this is what the, the recall is vote is actually about much more than local political issues. Eric Chu indicated that he might also push for trying to call someone like Freddie Lim, another young, more uh, pro- progressive, more emphatic on Taiwanese identity politician. And so I think we will see this pattern continuing. Uh, there's been less of a pattern of young people proposing recall votes against uh, these uh, pan-blue politicians in retribution for uh, these recall votes against young uh, pan-green politicians. That might happen. It might not happen. Uh, but I think it's also a way in which the KMT sees itself as on the defensive here. Uh, the DCT then in the past uh, two weeks or so, has leaned much more heavily into the issue in terms of supporting Chen Boy, uh, making more concrete statements, where they, they did keep out to some extent in the recall vote against Han Guoyu. But that's interesting, because just, it has been framed as a referendum on the DCT, or that's how the KMT is thought to frame it. And so leaning in at this late stage in the juncture, uh, that means that the DPP is paying more attention this time, uh, despite Chen not actually being part of the party. Well, it's an interesting argument, but we... Well, let's wait to see the next revenge for the revenge, the revenge recall. And <coughs> the ruling party started this with recalling the Kaohsiung mayor. So may might need to work with the opposition party and then cut a deal, discuss, sit at the table. And they need to understand that from if you're outside of Taiwan, when you look at these local petitions uh, arguing endlessly, uh, well, we can say that this legislator belongs to whatever dynasty of a, it's a gangster family, whatever. Well, there are gangsters in the blue and the green camp. And legislators and the ruling party and the opposition party need to sit and stop these bitter fights because it's not positive for Taiwan democracy on the long term. And Brian, do you think this could hurt younger KMT um, local election hopefuls in the future? 
I, I think so, actually, because of the fact that younger KMT politicians, including those that have called for reforming the party's image, have tried to steer clear of the uh, corruption that the KMT is associated with in their public image. And so uh, it's controversial when someone like Bu Quanzi in, in uh, just eastern Taiwan is someone that the party tries to reach out to as a player because of his history of corruption that he's currently in jail on, etc. Uh, just the fact that his family hasn't been involved in so many corruption scandals uh, and that they also are a political dynasty that is tied to organized crime, etc. Uh, and so I think the younger KMT politicians try to steer clear of this. And in these cases, uh, backing uh, a, a candidate that is widely known to have association with organized crime is not too helpful to changing the KMT's image. But I think sometimes at this point, the KMT is just clinging to whatever heavyweights or politicians or influential it can get because it feels it's on the defense of that it has to keep these politicians within the party. Otherwise, they might go elsewhere or just run as independents or even, let's say, align with the TPP. And, of course, if Chen is recalled, Brian, do you see the KMT going after more lawmakers like Freddie Lim in Taipei? I think so, yeah. I think they will definitely be emboldened by that. They already had one success with Huang Haoyu. And I think what's interesting, too, is the attempt to frame Chen Bowei or other, other politicians as being similar to Wang Haoyu, who is a DPP city councillor in Taoyuan, uh, because of the fact that he did have many outrageous antics online and was always getting to fight, etc. Uh, sometimes it's also involved uh, the claim that then that Chen Boy doesn't do anything, for example. I actually claimed that he had made zero legislative proposals, which was something that was not true. And so I think this kind of uh, fight, fighting about uh, young politicians and, and whether they should be allowed to have office will continue. But the KMT doesn't do itself any favors because it just does not have young candidates. And we have to leave the show now for a short break, and we'll, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week. And there was a myriad of Taiwan-Europe-related news this week. The European Parliament passed a report on enhancing ties between the European Union and Taiwan. And the EU-Taiwan Political Relations and Cooperation Report was approved by 580 lawmakers in favour, 26 against and 66 abstentions. It calls for the 27-member bloc to begin preparing for a possible signing of a bilateral investment agreement with Taiwan and to change the name of the EU representative office in Taipei. According to the report, the EU should seek to enhance closer cooperation with Taiwan by first launching an impact assessment, public consultation and scoping exercise for an EU-Taiwan bilateral investment agreement. And the report also calls for the name of the European Economic and Trade Office in Taipei to be changed to the European Union Office in Taiwan to reflect the broad scope of bilateral ties. Now, the report was passed after the European Commission's Executive Vice President, Marguerite Vestager, on Tuesday of this week, announced that the European European Union is actively seeking to step up its engagement with Taiwan. And speaking at a session of the European Parliament focusing on EU-Taiwan relations, Vestager noted China's increasing military presence in the Taiwan Strait and said that such actions have a direct impact on European security and prosperity. Meanwhile, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs this week confirmed that Foreign Minister Joseph Wu will visit Slovakia and the Czech Republic next week. The trip is part of a government effort to enhance closer ties with the two central European countries. 
Ministries. Now, according to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, who will be giving a keynote speech on October the 26th in Slovakia at an annual conference hosted by a local think tank on the theme of resilience in a post-pandemic world. Wu will then visit Prague, where he will receive a medal from the President of the Czech Senate, Milos Vistrasil, to honour the minister as a special guest in the country. He'll also be meeting with the mayor of Prague. Both of those two Czech chaps have visited Taiwan in the past couple of years. However, the Foreign Ministry says that Wu will not be attending a conference organised by the Interparliamentary Alliance on China in Rome later this month, with officials saying that, well, the Foreign Minister opted not to attend that conference due to his tight schedule and each country's coronavirus prevention regulations. And Joseph Wu will instead speak at the conference virtually. Needless to say, China is voicing its ire at Joseph Wu's plans to visit Slovakia and the Czech Republic and even to address the Interparliamentary Alliance on China virtually, with China's Foreign Ministry expressing its strong dissatisfaction that the countries are allowing these visits to take place and it's urging them not to undermine the political foundation of bilateral relations. So, Dimitri, a lot going on with Taiwan and Europe. I mean, do you see um, the the investment, the bilateral investment agreement being signed anytime soon or do you think this could take many months, if not many years? Well, we shouldn't be too optimistic about these issues and we also should be careful making uh, bold statements about the the, the fact that we're about to sign and and things sound like everything is going to get smooth. Uh, well, the Europe, Taiwan has strong support in the European Parliament, and it's a very good thing. And, for example, Taiwan, uh, the, well, this uh, upcoming visit in the Czech Republic makes a lot of sense, for example, because, uh, uh, well, we know that Thai, the Czech Republic ranks fourth in terms of Taiwanese investment in Europe behind Germany, the Netherlands, and the, and the UK. But... Taiwanese firms have been operating in the Czech Republic since 1995 with electronics companies like Foxconn, Asus, Acer, AU, Opto, uh, Optro, Optronics. They, they've been uh, in the market already. So we just, we just hope that the visit, the officials re- remain just low-key about the visit in order to protect these interests, the interests of these businesses and the big plans that Taiwan has uh, for trade with Europe. Uh, until uh, such a uh, trade agreement is signed, I think we should be super careful in making big statements or just getting on social media and claiming that uh, everything is done and it's going to work uh, as planned. It, things never work as planned. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, for example, previously when Keith Clark from the U.S., the uh, Undersecretary of State, came to Taiwan to negotiate uh, trade talks, uh, the Taiwanese government seemed to have, one explanation anyways, the Taiwanese government seemed to have trumpeted this too loudly. And so the, the, the official reason for the visit became changed to mourning Li Donghui. And so there are cases in which the Thai administration is too enthusiastic about uh, that these trade talks will happen or that there will be an agreement signed, etc., and that actually undercuts the ability to actually sign an agreement uh, because the Thai administration wants to use this for domestic politics to say that it has an accomplishment, but then sometimes that undermines actually doing it. And so I think it's interesting that with this uh, strengthening ties with Europe, um, in many cases this is also linked to domestic politics. For example... In the Czech Republic, uh, it is a way, for example, to strike at conservatives or, or uh, politicians that are more pro-China within Czech politics. And that's why some politicians have jumped on board with supporting Taiwan. Uh, with Eastern Europe particularly, I think what's interesting is that some countries might not actually have the most trade ties with China, such as Lithuania, but they have been signaling stronger support of Taiwan uh, through vaccine donations, etc., because it's a trade partner. Um, I think also then for uh, countries in Europe, there's also concern about Russia. And so... With the U.S. being a bulwark against 
the potential threat of Russia is, for example, uh, part of Eastern Europe, then perhaps aligning with Taiwan is a way to signal a stronger alignment with the U.S. And so I think there, there are multiple layers kind of, uh, to this, actually. Um, but it's interesting that it's uh, decided to be associated with the action centers abroad during this time, in a time of COVID. And so that does indicate, I think, the, the priority to which the Thai administration is placing on this trip. And Dimitri, of course, Brian made a good point about the Czech Republic. This is this, this, this Taiwan ties that the Czech Republic has been promoting recently have basically been a chasm between certain politicians and the government in Prague. Yeah, and well, they also have elections and things could change for good reasons or bad reasons. But uh, signing a bilateral trade agreement, uh, one, you know, the, the, the companies I mentioned earlier, like Foxconn, Foxconn, Asus and Acer, they also do business with China. So we are now, we, every country, we, we, it's it, the, the end of this strategic ambiguity. And even now businesses, like, sounds like they have to side between Taiwan or China. But as a fact, most these companies do business both in Taiwan, China, and other countries. So I'm not sure if they want that much publicity about such a state visit uh, to the Czech Republic. So, well, that's why I would maybe uh, advertise caution and just wait and see until uh, the agreement the agreement is actually signed. And, Brian, of course, Dimitri mentioned a low-key trip, but, of course, Joseph Wu and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs Twitter page uh, doesn't really sort of ab- agree with low-keyness, one could argue. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it depends. I think it depends on what will gain steam. Uh, I mean, if you going to make incendiary statements on this trip or he's just going to post about it and post some photos, uh, I think the general tendency for Taiwan, though, is that when there are these diplomatic trips, they are, uh, I guess, Marco, you could say quite heavily by the government bureaus that organize them. They want to shout this as an achievement that they are doing things uh, that Taiwan is advancing, that there are new breakthroughs being made diplomatically for Taiwan. Uh, but I think I think it's a question. I mean, it's a question to what extent China will retaliate uh, in terms of the measure it takes as well. I mean, it's possible that it will just retaliate anyway, regardless of what happens in some way. That it will attempt to lever uh, its pressure onto Taiwan or these European countries are strengthening relations with Taiwan just because it happened. And so I think it's a question if, if, if that will have a large effect on it. And I'm, I'm perfectly more concerned about, for example, will that affect trade talks if you just kind of market it too loudly. And moving away from Taiwan's international ties and the new Taipei District Prosecutor's Office on Monday of this week released YouTuber Xiao Yu on bail of 300,000 NT. The 26-year-old internet celebrity, whose real name is Zhu Yu Jun, is being investigated on allegations that he used face-swapping technology to make sex videos of public figures and then offered the mocked-up videos for sale. Prosecutors say that he used the deep fake app's face-swapping technology to superimpose the heads of DPP lawmaker Gao Jiayu, independent Kaohsiung city councillor Huang Jie, chicken cutlet girl and other public figures into the sex movies. And according to the prosecutor's office, Xiao Yu victimised over 100 people and netted over 11 million NT over the past year selling the fake movies. Now two other people have been questioned as part of the ongoing investigation and along with the YouTuber are facing possible charges related to the distribution of obscene videos and public insult in violation of the criminal code. Now the Kaohsiung City Councilor Huang Jie says that she's filed legal proceedings against the suspects, while lawmaker Gao Jiayu is saying she plans to seek legislation that specifically targets 
basically people that set out to humiliate people making such movies. And President Tsai Ing-wen this week also voiced her concern on the issue of deep fake movies, saying that her government is now evaluating existing regulations and will draft relevant amendments to laws, while Justice Minister Tsai Ching-shung told lawmakers during a legislative hearing that his office is already drafting amendments to existing laws and they will likely be submitted to the legislature for review within a month. Now, if you want to know, under current laws, those convicted of distributing obscene videos face a maximum prison sentence of two years, which can be converted to a fine while a conviction for public insult is punishable with a fine up to 9,000 NT. So, Brian, deep fake videos offending, well, just about everybody except the people that apparently Xiaoyu chatted to on his social media pages. Uh, that's right, and so there's been concern about this uh, being conducted in a Telegram group. And, for example, uh, celebrities and people within the group could vote on which celebrities they wanted to see, uh, people could commission videos using pictures of their exes, for example. Uh, or just even their current girlfriends or things like that. Uh, so it, it's interesting in that sense. It's discussed similarly to the uh, controversy in Japan, oh, no, sorry, not Japan, uh, South Korea over uh, illicit videos being circulated in secret telegram groups. And I think with the development of social media and these kind of technologies, such as the fake technology, there's a potential for great harm. Uh, and concern from lawmakers or people in government has been that existing laws lag behind, that they do not take account these new forms of digital harassment that have been developed. Uh, through through that technology, and these these issues may potentially get worse because the technology will continue to advance. Uh, right now, you can tell when, for example, a face is deepfake because there's usually issues around when where the face is put onto the body of someone entirely different. But that will get better over time, and the way to conduct these apps will just to use them uh, will become easier and easier as well. They might become more like apps rather than uh, you know, requiring all this kind of data information and so forth. That's a bit unusual this time too that actually the culprits were people who are themselves public eye as YouTubers and, and celebrities and uh, influencers and that sort of thing as well, whereas there could just be groups like this that just go and fly under the radar, etc. Um, and so I think this raises a lot of concerns about what will happen in the future, but I think that there's also the larger social issue at stake here, is that uh, Taiwanese media often points on women in a very uh, sexist, misogynist manner, uh, very focusing on physical attributes, uh, even for very serious stories regarding, for example, tragedies or, or uh, with COVID, there's COVID victims being reported on and, uh, just in a very sexualized manner. Even reporting on this story itself was done in the same way. Uh, for example, there's a, the Apple Daily article on Huangzi had a photo of her in the gym for some reason, rather than uh, just the more, uh, let's say, directly related to the, the issue uh, photo. And so I think this points to larger issues in Taiwanese society. Right. Well, deep fakes have changed the idea that, that seeing is believing, and this could have a really a huge impact on how future political campaigns unfold. You, you can find swap face, swap face applications on social media, so everywhere. So it was just a matter of time before someone tries such tools on public figures. Uh, for me, the main concern is that deep fakes could lead to people denying legitimate videos, which is the goal of many deniers on social media making a living out of those clicks. So, well, we should also know that, well, Convincing fake audio is also here now, meaning that we could replicate a person's voice using computer-generated speech. That sounds deceivingly lifelike. So, well, yes, I'm really concerned by these new tools. And Brian, what about changing the law? I mean, obviously, the you, if you're convicted of distributing obscene videos now, you can face a maximum prison sentence of two years, which can be converted to a fine, while a conviction for public insult is punishable by a fine of 9,000 NT. I mean, do you think this is enough to deter possible future instances of this, or do you think these punishments need to be very much ramped up? 
That's a, I think it's a question, yeah, because you can increase punishment, but there will still be people that are willing to do this. Uh, so, for example, uh, one of the after this incident, after this arrest, uh, there was a near media report from May on this uh, Telegram group that was circulated online widely. And in that, uh, Executive Grand Spokesperson, also Minister of that portfolio, Wobing Chen takes the view uh, that the current laws are enough, they are too lax, uh, but also they're not just adapted to, to uh, digital circumstances. Like this is more in defamation charges, not regarding sexual harassment, and there's a failure to take into account uh, sexual harassment. Some of the lawmakers who have been featured in these videos have also called for the development of institutions of the government to handle um, this, these kind of digital crimes. And I think this is going to be increasingly an issue going forward. Uh, this is now the issue of these fakes comes up within uh, with regards to sexual harassment and, and so forth. Uh, but then there's also the issue regarding disinformation. You know, what happens if you then have playing with uh, giving a fake comment in a video that is deep faked or has the audio fake, etc. And then this is used for some kind of disinformation claim. Uh, that could happen and that will happen in the future. And these are also other ways in which these technologies might be used. And so I think that, that too is a matter of concern. And before we go this week, the Ministry of Labour released its latest International Labour Statistics report and the figures show that folks here in Taiwan on average work more hours than their counterparts in all but three other countries last year. Now the survey covered 40 economies and Singapore placed first in average hours worked with an average of 2,288 hours logged by its workers in 2020. That was followed by Colombia and Mexico while Taiwan was in fourth place like I said with an average of 2,021 average hours worked in 2020. Now according to the Department of Labour Standards and Equal Employment, Taiwan's work hours were long because the hours worked by part-time employers were also included in the calculation and officials say that Taiwan's part-time employees totaled about 3.7% in 2020 and while that's low compared to other countries it was still an increase from 2019 with that number stood at 3.2% of the employed population and the increase is being attributed to the coronavirus pandemic as more people were forced to take on more part-time jobs. Dimitri. Well, we should be very careful when reporting these numbers that are average numbers across all sectors and industries, including, as you said, workers with part-time jobs. So it's just a sum divided by the number of workers. So we should also remember that most office workers work from home for a few months this year, meaning that they couldn't report the exact number of hours they actually spent on office work per week at home. So the truth is that workers in Asia have continued to work long hours, so that from the numbers we can see that many economies in Asia, for, for these, the workers work longer, longer hours than their counterparts in other countries. So despite the pandemic, which I think after in the post-pandemic world, we could actually, uh, things could continue to go that way. So, well, I'm uh, I'm less optimistic. I'm not optimistic that things could improve when the pandemic is over. Yeah, so I think uh, what's interesting is look at past years, this has been pretty consistent. Taiwan has very high, very long working hours, and this has not changed. Uh, I think what's also interesting is that these numbers could actually be lower than, than what is actually, actually taking place because of the fact that it's widely known, Spidey, uh, there are many companies that do not allow their workers to report the actual hours of overtime work. They have various internal regulations that workers are then forced to comply with if they're working at an office just to get by and so even though this is a violation of labor laws, uh, sometimes the labor injections are relatively toothless. And so I think this is a recurring problem in Taiwanese society. Um, what's interesting is that Taiwan was less affected by the coronavirus. The economy has done well. Uh, but at the same time, workers have not felt this because of the fact that uh, they don't see the profits despite increasing profits. Uh, their salaries remain low. They remain working long hours. And then the decide administration, for example, will cut public holidays in its first term. And so I think this, this problem just continues to take place. And it's not surprising that this year is similar to previous years.
And Dimitri, do you think people in Taiwan deserve more public holidays? Well, we do have many public holidays, but I, need, I think we need clear, clear regulations uh, stating that uh, during your, when you're not working, you shouldn't receive messages and calls from the office. So when you're off work, you should be off social media and you shouldn't be online uh, all the evening answering questions from your supervisors. Uh, workers need a time off. Uh, for the numbers you mentioned earlier, if you divide these numbers by 52, the number of weeks per year, South Korean workers work 36 hours per week. Japanese workers, 30 hours per week. doesn't make any sense. Workers in South Korea, Japan, and, and, and Taiwan work many more hours than that. But these hours are not reported. So that's why we need to be cautious with uh, surveys like this. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. Uh, as directly in much business conducted online, Oftentimes, workers are expected to continue responding to uh, customer inquiries. And it was the case that when boss asks something online, you sort of have to respond. There's no option not to do that. And that's not exactly included in, included in work hours, however, you are still working on them. And so particularly, I think, as uh, oftentimes you have these kind of service sector industry jobs or you have a lot of uh, digital commerce, as uh, Taiwan is, is a relatively advanced society in that respect, I think you're going to have more of this problem as well. And so I think that, that also should be taken into account regarding uh, these sort of issues. And that's where we'll leave it here this week, here on Taiwan This Week, and I've been joined today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And Dimitri Buras. Hi, good evening. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.